Hello, everybody, and welcome to the third episode of the Trojan Venture Podcast. My name is Eric Traub, alongside my partner, Vivek. Vivek, how are we doing? Pretty solid. Excited to do this episode, you know, got some cool founders, so yeah. Seems like a really cool guy we're going to have on, who we'll introduce in just a minute. How was your break, though? Pretty chill. Was back at home with my parents and my family. Um, Yeah, just got to spend some time there. It was good. How about you? Everything was good. Ate a lot of food, had a lot of family time, so I was thankful for that and excited for what we have in store today. So today we are excited to welcome Connor Haley, CEO and co-founder of Axel Health. Connor is a graduate of Columbia University with prior experience as a software developer at Shout Inc., a software engineer at ZocDoc, as well as being the first product hire at Intermedicare. Connor is going to speak with us today all about Axel Health as well as his personal story. And we're super excited to have him on. Should we get him on the call? Yeah, let's do it. Hi, Connor. Hey. Welcome to the show. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for being here. How's everything going? Pretty good. It's a sunny day in LA after uh, all the rain last week. <laughs> Pretty nice. I know. It was not what we signed up for being at, back out on the West Coast, but it's looking like Definitely it's. Definitely not. So, uh, Let's get right into some questions. So in college, you founded Nortron Technologies in which you created a forward-looking cell phone case. What inspired you to take on this venture? When, so I, one of the classes that I was in was basically on the 10th floor of this tall building and it looked out onto a student plaza. I saw dozens of people, like literally everyone in view was walking and using their cell phone at the same time. It actually kind of looked pretty comical. And uh, having done it myself, obviously, I thought maybe there was a device that I could create that would mitigate, obviously, some of the dangers of it. Um, And so that device ended up being Flick, which at the time I was in love with acronyms. It stood for forward-looking cell phone case. Created an app. That's actually how I first learned to program. This is before I was majoring in computer science that basically created a transparent background behind all of the apps that you like, like WhatsApp or text messages, stuff like that. So that you could actually, and then of course the case had a little mirror on it that you would flick out and you could actually see what was in front of you while you were walking and texting. So I created a prototype with 3D printer, eventually got got it um, manufactured by a company in Connecticut. It ultimately didn't work out, but it was, I learned a couple of good lessons from it in, in the process. The acronym is very creative, so <laughs> creativity was definitely something on your side there. Yeah. Yeah, man, that sounds amazing. Like, that must have been an interesting process to go through that. But, like, looking back, like, what did you ultimately take away from your experience of, like, taking two semesters off to actually found a company? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a couple things. So, firstly, hardware is hard. So, if you are if you're committed to hardware... Just know that going into it. Another one was that there's really no sort of substitute for on-the-job learning when it comes to entrepreneurship, software engineering. There's just so much that doesn't get taught to you during your classes. The idea that you know a product market fit is something that you never learn, right? You kind of just build something to spec, but as an entrepreneur, you obviously need to find that product market fit. And for Flick, it didn't exist. And so I learned that you really need to qualify what you work on before you work on it. The idea that you shouldn't put time, money, effort into doing something 
without having really low touch ways of determining interest. I think that was the, the most important thing that I learned from that first experience. And was this first experience, was that your, what it essentially got you interested in technology in general? Did, was this starting college? Was this beforehand? I've always thought of tech and computer science as a way to sort of feed my entrepreneurial appetite. The idea that, you know, I didn't really didn't code until I got to college once I wanted to work on Flick. It's really a hammer in your tool belt, right? Like other things like accounting or economics or um, any sort of other field, it is a it's a hammer in your tool belt to be able to make a company, right? And it's a very valuable one, obviously. And so it's one that I wanted to double down on, but it was really in service of just making products that resonate with people. Awesome, yeah. That seems like you have a huge amount of like experience in product development. Um, but like now I want to shift more towards like your company and like what you do now. So like did Axel help start out of like a huge need for at home COVID testing or was it more like a larger mission that you guys had from the beginning? It definitely was informed by what happened during the pandemic. In large part, people weren't going into labs and offices to get treatment. Uh, companies couldn't get access to patients. Insurance companies were losing out because ultimately those patients got sicker because they didn't go in to be seen by providers early for preventive treatment. And so we realized, okay, there's definitely something here. Care should shift to the home. It's more useful for it, or it's more convenient for patients. It's better for providers as well. And so we knew care was going to move to the home. It so happened that COVID and COVID testing was that first use case, right? A killer use case, so to speak, at the very beginning that allowed, allowed us to develop the product in a way that it was useful for um, customers. Ultimately, we realized that COVID, you know, it's going to become endemic, um, but that it wouldn't be in the pandemic phase and that testing wouldn't necessarily be, uh, you know, used a ton going forward. And so we needed use cases that were outside of COVID. Ultimately, we found those in things like Medicare Advantage, clinical trials, health systems. So we really shifted our entire strategy within, I'd say about six months of starting the company. We used COVID to build the initial product. And then subsequent to that, we found customers who we knew that we could grow for the long-term. And I would say, at least in your, in your sector, COVID was probably an accelerator of a lot of trends that a lot of people like yourself thought were coming already. And kind of allowed you to establish product market fit, as you said, was so important. And so once you established product market fit, what led you to apply to Y Combinator? Yeah, we actually applied to Y Combinator before we'd built anything. So we applied to YC pre-product market fit. I think that YC is, so in part, the reason that we applied to YC is because in a healthcare business, especially you need there are certain legal costs, sort of structures that you need to set up to be able to operate in that environment. So we did need money, but I would recommend YC to anyone who's starting a company for the first time, just because of the real focus and energy that they bring to the process. I think that a lot of first-time entrepreneurs underestimate sort of the intensity that you need to put into creating a venture from scratch. And YC is very good at instilling that ethos as the program um, you know, goes through the course of it. Okay, so yeah, you mentioned like briefly about like the challenges you guys faced when you were building Axel Health. What in your opinion is like the biggest challenges that you guys faced regarding like the building of the back end of the business? Um, so like specifically dealing with like the state by state laws and like what medical professionals can like perform 
and you know stuff like that like what's your what's your biggest challenge yeah yeah there's the sort of bureaucratic legal piece that is just resolved by lawyers being able to say okay in new york this is the requirement and this is what this health professional license level can do and in california they can do something different in florida they can do something even different than, than the other two so you basically take that and then we codified it from an engineering perspective and we were able to put that into our code base so you basically get what you can do in all of the states based on license level you create this matrix you put it in your code base and then that's the type of thing that's super valuable because as we provide the service for customers, it means that they don't need to go off and build that themselves. Not only do they not need to spend all of the money that they would need to on lawyers to confirm who can do what in each state, but they also don't need to spend the time building the technology to be able to, term, to determine that as well. And then you can imagine that that routing algorithm, it takes into account a lot, right? It takes into account license level, geography, pay structures, um, quality. There are so many different things that it can start to take into account and really snowball so to help the company create this lead, this technological lead um, in serving our customers. Cool. All right. So to kind of summarize what you said, like you guys coded in the laws and like the practices based on each state into your code base already. Like it's already set in stone. Exactly. Awesome. All right. Okay. That's really cool. Yeah. That's amazing. And as you, as you mentioned, that obviously creates a unique value add because it makes it much, I mean, with laws state by state being very complicated to be able to do it in one specific location is very valuable. What kind of from a more of a broader perspective, since we had during COVID such a move towards telehealth, do you think effective provider care will always require an income person component, like the thing that Axel is offering? I do. And obviously I'm biased when I say that, but there's the telehealth is useful in allowing people to access care where they might not otherwise be able to or making it more convenient. But you can't get around the fact that you need physical measurements and physical treatment in order to affect healthcare. The vaccines that we provide, EKGs, um, blood draws, these are things that are always going to be physical and provide that data that providers need to make a lot of diagnoses, a lot of impactful diagnoses. And that's not to take anything away from telehealth, right? Telehealth definitely has its role, but to make really impactful diagnoses and to, and to administer impactful treatments, you really do need that in-person component. And because it's changes state by state in terms of laws, obviously you have a database to kind of configure what works and what which states and what doesn't, but how do you make the business scalable then if there's kind of so many hurdles state by state? Once that's codified, we can really just automate all of it. And we have. So, you know, we can say, okay, in California, a medical assistant can't administer an IV, but in Florida, they can. And to this point, companies that have been national but haven't used our technology have had to do that manually. And they know, okay, I'm looking at a spreadsheet in Florida, they can do this. I have a medical assistant here. Okay, I'm gonna send them. But then in California, they have to know that that same person or that same license level cannot be assigned to that type of visit. And for us, it's completely automated. There's no human intervention when it comes to affecting those decisions. Oh, uh, yeah. So, yeah, you mentioned that like, there's not really a huge human component because uh, you have it already like built into your code. Um, but when it does come to hiring people, like what are some of the lessons that you've learned from the hiring process at Axel? 
I think one of the most important things in hiring people for a startup is intellectual curiosity and autonomy. Those are the two things that we really test for when we bring people on. Specifically on the engineering side, there's no need to know any particular coding language or databases. And on the operations side, there's no real need to have been involved in healthcare before. There's just so much uncertainty at a small startup that you need to be able to handle the ambiguity in a way that you're not constantly leaning on your colleagues or managers to get something done. Of course, you can ask them questions, but in order for everyone to really be as productive as possible, they need to take as much ownership as possible. And so, you know, a shameless plug for having people come work at startups, you really get a lot more responsibility when you work at a startup. That is hundred percent true. And it allows you to, I think, develop at a much quicker pace, especially if you want to be an entrepreneur. If you want to be a software engineer, you only want to be a software engineer, then going to a large company will really help you learn those ropes. But if you want to be an entrepreneurship, then learning at the ground level, I think, is, is the most impactful way to do that. And you speak to the importance of intellectual curiosity, especially at a small place. Are there any things that you specifically do, um, along with your co-founder, Adam, to kind of uh, integrate that thinking into day-to-day -day practices, um, kind of any tools that you guys use? Well, we encourage people to go off and learn new things on their own and to bring that into the fold. So, I mean, specifically, you see some of these things on the engineering side, but it might be new technologies. It might be learning about a piece of the business and then being able to provide your thoughts on that piece of the business. There's really a great deal of flexibility and how people are allocated to um, work on various projects, right? So we really want people to, if someone comes with an idea, they can then run with that idea, right? If, if the team agrees that that's something uh, that we should work on. So it's really just about having, in, in a lot of larger companies, you'll see people not want to rock the boat, or they don't necessarily feel like they're in a position to change things or affect outcomes. And we want everybody to have that sort of feeling of autonomy, feeling of, you know, their intellectual curiosity leading to impactful outcomes at the company. Yeah. And you, you speak a lot about like having autonomy. Um, and, but I think like with autonomy, sometimes you can like run into mistakes more often because you have that autonomy. Um, so like, what do you think are like some of the mistakes that you've made while leading Axel or like, what is the biggest mistake you may have made? You're 100% right. So more autonomy definitely leads to more mistakes, especially, and our, our entire engineering team uh, is, everyone's under 25 on the engineering team, which is just to say that they don't have very much experience in the space, right? I think they only have two or three years of experience, even less. So mistakes are definitely made, but the trade-off is that you get this you know, if, if mistakes are made 5% of the time, 10% of the time, this other 90% of the time, you're super productive and you're doing something really impactful. And it's just a trade-off. And at a startup, you want to move really quickly and you accept those five to 10% uh, mistakes while at the same time getting sort of that 90% um, of the time you're super productive. And so you co-founded Axel with your college friend, Adam. Um, we have a lot of people in college that are looking to start companies or have started companies with um, other people. Other than being your friend, how did you know that Adam was the right person to kind of take on this venture with? Yeah, I think that 
colleges, there are many ways to find a co-founder and it's not to say that you'll necessarily be more successful with one than the other, but I think finding a co-founder in college is super helpful. You tend to know that person fairly well. You have a good understanding of their work ethic. Uh, you have a good understanding, obviously, of who they are as a person, which is really important to starting a company. So definitely for anyone who's listening and is looking for a co-founder, college is a good place to start. I think that for, for Adam in particular, I mean, in addition to sort of those good qualities, uh, there's also just the relevant work history as well. He was at Uber. He um, worked in consulting. So he has a good understanding of how to optimize processes how to improve performance um, specifically for our business, how to do things like improve utilization. So, I mean, there's just, uh, you know, for Adam in particular, and then more broadly, I think that uh, college is a great place to find your co-founder. Awesome. Yeah. That sounds like a great relationship to have, like to have a co-founder that's like, you know, close to you and like, yeah, I'm definitely looking for a co-founder as well. So I hope I come across one soon. Um, so like, yeah, could you like dive into a little bit about Axel Health's relationship with uh, clinical researchers, notably ensuring that, you know, there's patient compliance? Yeah, with clinical research, one of the, well, there are a couple of pieces that kind of make our business appealing to clinical research. That's you get to improve retention in your trials. So the average trial participant has to drive 25 miles to a trial site. That obviously leads to drop off, which is messes up the trial's data, which then makes the trial take longer. But you can also improve sort of the diversity and breadth of people who you include in a trial if you offer in-home care as well. So that's something, again, it's sort of back to that access to transportation piece, um, access to the clinical trial site during business hours, right? A lot of people work, you know, from, from nine to five or nine to seven, nine to nine, and they can't access if the site is only going to be open from you know eight to four, they just can't go, right? And so enabling people to participate in clinical trials from home is super useful on that piece. And then from sort of the, the adherence side of it, you're much more likely to, if you, we actually had a patient who left a review that said, I got home from a long day of work and I was just able to do the blood draw at home. Um, and he likely wouldn't have gone into the trial site. So it really is about giving people access. And often enough, these trials are valuable enough for researchers and they want to get their products to market quickly enough. Obviously, you know, if you're thinking about something like the COVID vaccine, um, even a matter of days or weeks of a delay can really be very impactful. So this is something that researchers love to engage uh, with when they can, because it really provides a lot of tailwinds to their trials. And I, speaking of in-home based care, a little more broadly to that, do you have kind of a bold prediction um, for where you kind of see the industry being in five years? Hopefully, Axe will be at the forefront of that. Um, but kind of things that you think are going to be different in the current landscape? Predictions are almost always wrong. But <laughs> if I had to sort of wave a wand, at least, I'll say, and if I could make things a certain way, I think that one of the most impactful things for for patients and then for the system as a whole will be to have sort of what I would call like virtual health systems. And so you have a conglomeration um, of, of doctors who are cardiologists, gastroenterologists, primary care doctors, and they're sort of a virtual health system. They see people virtually most often. They have sort of small sites of care, right? Maybe they have, maybe between them, they all share a small office. And then the idea is that a company, um, 
Axel Health, for example, is going in home to be able to gather diagnostic data and administer treatment on behalf of this group of providers, essentially. So for the cardiology clinic, Axel's going to do EKGs. Um, for, you know, for primary care, we're going to do something like vaccines. And then the idea is that these, these providers can be virtual almost all the time. And maybe they only go into their office one or two days a week to see the patients who really need to be seen in person, maybe for something like colonoscopy. But the rest of the time, the providers are going to be virtual and Axel will be in the home. So, yeah, I mean, my only question to that is like, is there ever a discrepancy between like the equipment you need for like at home care? Because like, you know, like EKGs and all those things, they require equipment. I'm just worried, like wondering if um, like, like, is there any challenges when it comes to that sort of thing, like equipment and such? Yeah, there's, so we've built part of our technology around sort of supply chain management. So we have warehouses in Atlanta and uh, down in Torrance in, in the LA area where we're able to basically use our tech and it says, uh, okay, this health professional has visits that require this many blood draw tubes that require this device um, to check a patient's, you know, whether maybe it's pulse oximeter or whatever. And the tech then says in an automated way, okay, this person has this many visits coming up that require this supply. And this is the supply that they currently have because we're also able to track that based on the visits that they do. And then it automatically creates a shipment order from the warehouse to that health professional to get them the supplies that they need. So you're absolutely right that that is a big part of the business and being able to scale this, you really need to automate a lot of that supply chain management. So was this... <clears throat> When you were first in Y Combinator, what was the first, what were you kind of building your MVP around? Was it ab about kind of getting out this equipment or was it just kind of encoding the different stuff in terms of state-by-state -state laws? It was mostly routing. So like things like scheduling and routing, those are, to this point, home healthcare has been a very pen and paper business, spreadsheets, uh, things like that. And so it was really about having a way for patients to see a specific time slot that they could book. A lot of both home healthcare previously and things like, you know, if, if the cable guy or the plumber is coming to your house, they say, uh, be there between eight and 12 or between one and five. And so a lot of it was about building sort of the routing technology to be able to say, you will actually be seen at, you know, 930 AM and to be able to pick that time slot. So that was really the first thing that we concentrated on. And then subsequently, as we scaled, we started to add on things like supply chain management. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot to like worry about, I feel like. And so like, yeah, I mean, going back to the mistake question, what's your biggest mistake when it comes to these many things? Like, there's always so much to manage. I feel like there's got to be something. I mean, I think that certainly one of the mistakes that we made early on, it's very important to qualify your sales leads in the most like stringent way possible. So you end up getting, a lot of people will say, oh, I'm really interested in your product. But you have to find the exact customer set that is going to be not only that needs your product, that desperately needs your product, but that you're going to be able to scale with as well. And so at the beginning, you know, we were kind of fumbling around saying like, oh, maybe this market segment is, is the best to go after. or Maybe this company would be good. And we actually took a lot of companies on as customers that probably were not scalable for us just because they didn't really provide, uh, they didn't provide the volume that we needed. They didn't provide sort of the geographies that we were interested in, but we took them on just because 
we were, you know, we needed customers and you're also sort of like flattered, right? You're like, oh, somebody wants our product. So we're going to like onboard them as a customer. But in reality, you should really be cutthroat about who you're bringing on as a customer. And in the same way that prospective customers are looking at different solutions for you in, in your space, you should also be looking at them and saying, is this customer one that we can scale with, that we can grow with, and is going to help us build the business in a direction that we want to go? In terms of scalability, how are you measuring that? Is it just in terms of the company's volume, size? Are there other kind of factors you look at in, in terms of evaluating that? Yeah. So, I mean, definitely those. So, you know, how many patients, basically what volume they're doing, where they're doing that volume, then things like complexity. So there are some customers who have very low volume, but very high complexity. And so if there's not really a corresponding, you know, financial incentive to do that, then that's a much tougher sell, right? So you want to make sure that that combination between volume, geography, complexity, that that all kind of works together um, to be able to give you a scalable customer. All right. Yeah, I've learned a lot today about Axel Health and your your story. It's been amazing to hear. Um, uh, Eric, do you have any more questions or are we, how are we feeling? I don't. I, th I think if I had to ask one more, when you're looking into funding, um, especially since you're now in the healthcare space, how do you go about looking for investing partners that are really going to bring you value? So warm intros are definitely a good way to do that. You sort of, I mean, VCs get pitched by over email by thousands of people all the time. And it's difficult for them to sift through that and see what's serious and what's not. But especially where you guys are at right now, you know, USC sort of, USC actually has a lot of entrepreneurial resources. And so that community as well could be an alumni network, an angel network, um, an accelerator professors even potentially uh, who can angel invest. There are a lot of ways that you can sort of seed your company. And the good news is when you're starting a software company is unless you're in a highly regulated space like healthcare, you typically don't need a lot of startup capital. You can really easily test MVPs, uh, even less than MVPs. You can just put up a landing page and see how many clicks you get, right? To be able to kind of understand the direction of, of where things are headed and then take that data to an angel network or to a seed stage investor and say, hey, I've got this really promising thing. I need a hundred grand uh, to be able to kind of build it out in a way that we can test it to the next stage. Thank you so much uh, for that, Vic. Really, if, unless you have any other questions, I learned a ton today um, about entrepreneurship, about your specific space. And we obviously want to prop up Axel Health for anybody listening to this. And if you're a potential customer, obviously go use Axel Health. It's run by a great guy. Um, so thank you again so much for coming on. Cool. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, thank you. All right. I learned a lot from that. I think. The main things I learned were that, you know, making the startups really difficult and there's going to be challenges along the way and you're just going to have to go through them and hopefully you make more right decisions than you make wrong. You know, I think that's what ultimately comes down to. It was, I agree with that, obviously. It was super interesting um, to hear about kind of his value add, at least at first, was being able to kind of codify all this information 
um, in a way that would make it really simple and really efficient for um, first customers. And I think that's such an important component of all companies kind of at a, even at a small scale, how can you provide value or make it easier for, for companies to, to do what they want to do? And obviously there's a lot of things to think about when you're providing in-home care and how that combines with telehealth. And I think they have a really good vision for how they go, they're going about it. So I'm ex excited to see where they go. Yeah, me too. I think they have a lot of promise. So Guys, thank you for watching or listening to the third episode of the Trojan Venture Podcast. We have more episodes coming up in the next months. We're looking to put out episodes bi-monthly, so stay tuned and see you soon.